Welcome to College Land, the podcast featuring untold stories from higher education. I'm Nan Enstead in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Lisa Levenstein in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're here to explore life inside our nation's colleges and universities and to track some of the major changes that are happening. We do this by sharing stories about the people who work there. This week on campus, we're noticing that 200 colleges and universities around the country have already announced a mandatory COVID vaccination policy for the fall semester. Nan, I looked at the list, and as you might expect, the majority of the universities requiring the vaccine are private institutions. But the number of public universities seem to be growing. So far, it's mostly in blue states like California, Massachusetts, and Maryland. The University of North Carolina, where I work, isn't on the list yet. So listeners, you might be hearing some stories from me in the fall about what it's like to work on a campus in which some people aren't vaccinated. Yeah, that's going to be the case for me, too, here in Wisconsin. I think it's going to be interesting to see how vaccine hesitancy plays out in relation to public health protocols. And I would guess that we're going to see some fireworks. Um, Here at the University of Wisconsin, the chancellor just announced at Faculty Senate this week that we would have no vaccine requirement for the fall. There was sort of a euphemistic phrase uh, about the politics of the state are such that. Uh, So, you know, the vaccines have been so thoroughly politicized, a vaccine requirement would be a red flag to the bulls in our state legislature. But what UW-Madison is going to do is require weekly or even twice a week testing of anyone who can't or won't prove vaccination. So they're going to wow. make it inconvenient. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna make it inconvenient. And that's how they've been doing it recently, right? And I do want to acknowledge that some people can't be vaccinated for health reasons, but a lot of other factors come into play. And one that I was really surprised about is that here at UW-Madison, the University Health Services just put out a call that they had a lot of extra vaccine because students are in finals week and they don't want to go in for their second dose, right? They want to delay it because they don't want to get sick during finals week. So (laughs) that makes sense. Do you know? I get it. Absolutely. My daughter, a similar thing is happening with her cohort of seniors and the AP exams, which are happening right now. And it's just the timing is really working out that a lot of, I think, young people's second doses are coming right at that moment when they have these, you know, kind of high stakes tests that they have to do. You know, a lot of weird things can happen on college campuses during finals. And at UNCG, we're in the middle of a search to hire a new provost right now. And the provost, you know, it's a hugely important position in a university. In fact, we should do a college land episode about the provost position. I mean, basically, they're in charge of everything to do with academics. So I'm wondering, is it a coincidence that we're doing this search in the midst of basically the busiest week of the semester when faculty and staff are buried under grading and trying to support students who are struggling to get finished? Because the reason I'm thinking this, and you're really not going to believe this, but one of the candidates for our provost position is William Falls, the dean at the University of Vermont. Yeah, that's just incredible, you know, because we... (laughs) We discussed William Falls in our very first episode of College Land. He is, he's notorious here in College Land. You know, in in December of 2020, as Dean of the University of Vermont, Falls announced cuts to 12 majors, 
11 minors and four MA programs and did this all without consulting faculty. And so a movement of students, staff and faculty immediately formed to try to block these excessive cuts. And we talked on that episode about how administrators were going to use COVID-19 as an excuse to advance cuts that they had already been planning as part of a neoliberal restructuring of universities. Yeah. So I spent part of my week helping to write a letter to the administration opposing Fall's candidacy for our provost position. And, you know, it's one of those sign-on letters. So we've been circulating it, trying to get faculty and staff to sign it. You know, it's really upsetting to me that he was rewarded for his actions at the University of Vermont by being invited to interview for an even bigger job at another university and that that university is mine. Right, which could signal plans that they have for what they think should happen in the future. You know, and we have such different ideas right now about what we should be valuing in universities and what the future model should be. We see this conflict playing out in so many arenas. Today, our interview takes us into the world of college and university libraries, which is another arena of university life that is often subject to cuts these days and is often misunderstood. I talked to Maura Seal of the University of Michigan Library System about what the library is really about. So let's listen. My guest today is Maura Seal, history librarian at the University of Michigan and a prolific library scholar and publisher in library journals. Maura Seal, welcome to College Land. Thanks for having me. You know, libraries are at the core of colleges and universities, but I don't think that those of us outside of the library really understand the actual work that's done there. Could you start by just sort of taking us through your day? What do, what do you do? Sure. Um, so first of all, a lot of people don't understand what goes on in libraries. This is not unusual. So I'm what is often called a subject librarian or a liaison librarian. And what that means is I'm the primary point person for a specific department. I build the collections in that area. I um, do instruction sessions on how to do library research for that department, in this case, the history department. And I also liaise with the department. So I send out announcements about like database trials, about what's going on. This has been a very big year for, (laughs) for sending out a lot of emails about what's been going on. And then I work with the library on sort of internal committees and processes. And then finally, I work with with the profession, like, like, like many faculty do. So I'm a member of our professional organizations, I volunteer on committees, and I research and I publish. But I'm only one type of librarian. There's tons of other different types of librarians. We have librarians who, um, you know, run our platforms. So the catalog search, <laughs> the article search, we have librarians who catalog materials. So I work for a fairly large library system. We buy lots and lots of things. We have catalogers for all different kinds of foreign languages. We have librarians who work with special collections and archives. So there's lots of different types of positions within libraries, and most of them aren't really seen. I'm in a public-facing role, but a lot of people are not. So like librarians who work for technical services, who like create catalog records, like you often don't see them, but you definitely use their work if you search the catalog, for example, or the electronic resources folks who maintain all of our you know, journal subscriptions and make sure that they're up to date and that links aren't broken and things like that. So libraries do a lot of stuff <laughs> and it isn't really often visible to the campus. Yeah. And you, and you teach students too, right? Like you work with students. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I teach undergrads and grad students, um, usually in library instruction sessions. So I'll come in to, as like a guest speaker in a class and um, usually sort of speak a little bit to their assignment, what they have to do for the class. Sometimes with undergrads, I set up online guides to sort of point them to the best resources. And I also do consultations. So like, especially graduate students, if they have a bigger project, they want to sort of know what's out there. They want to use like you know, more advanced tools, like something like WorldCat, which is a combined library catalog. Yeah. So in <laughs> consultations and uh, library instruction sessions. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for spelling out the seen and unseen. And I think even for people like you who are public facing, like, hey, as a faculty member, I definitely interact with the librarians who are liaise with me, but I don't necessarily know what they're doing <laughs> for their job the rest of the time, you know? And I think, you know, most people think that they understand libraries, but they really don't. There are a lot of misconceptions, as you said, and I had a lot of misconceptions. And a big one is about technology and like this idea that the digital revolution is making libraries obsolete or at the very least hugely challenged, you know? And what do you think about this? So, so libraries have been working with technology for a really long time. We were early adopters of command line interfaces for catalogs. I remember when I was a kid using the Detroit Public Library, they had an online public catalog, and this would have been in like the late 1980s, <laughs> and, and you used the command line to, to search it. So libraries have actually been pretty early adopters of a lot of different technologies. So I think this narrative is actually like pretty damaging because we're not against technology. We use it constantly. You can't keep track of 13 million items without using technology of some sort. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you are attached to an idea that libraries are about books, right. And then you can get the idea that librarians are sort of these technologically troubled people who are, who are going around beseeching students, you know, wouldn't you rather read a book while the students are like watching TikTok videos or something on their phones, you know, but in fact, like the librarians are technology mavens. They've been doing this for a long time. Can you talk more about like librarians and information services and what they've been doing? Yeah. And I would also say that libraries are also about books. We're also very much still about physical collections, you know, special collections and archives like Special collections especially deals a lot heavily with physical materials, but archives these days, which are, you know, the collected records of an organization, archives do both, they work with both physical archives and digital archives. So, so most of us sort of work in both realms constantly. And there's lots of different reasons for that. So I think when people say something like, oh, it's, it's all online. Well, well, no, it's not. It never will be. There's not the will and the resources to digitize everything but also like physical books are still like honestly they're the best preservation medium they're easy to preserve we know how to do it and just like there's tons of things that aren't available online and won't be available online for institutions to purchase libraries have a mission to collect and preserve sort of our cultural heritage writ broadly and technology companies and like web companies and internet companies don't have that mission. So if those materials are to be preserved and kept, like that's where libraries and 
not just libraries, but archives, museums, all of those um, cultural heritage organizations really can play a, a huge role in preserving, you know, digital collections, digital archives. And we do a lot of that. It's an easy narrative. It's sort of a popular narrative. Um, but most of the folks I work with and have worked with, we value both the physical and the digital. Like it's not an either or thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, right, our, our society got so fascinated with the digital changes, right? That there, yeah, that opposition between them, you know, that people have in their imaginations can really lead to a whole lot of ways of misunderstanding that, like, librarians are the ones who know how to do both, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> are not living with this, like, hampering inability to think about both in the same thought bubble, right? It, it seems really important and that the job is actually about being able to traverse across these different mediums and platforms really fluently. Yeah, like ebooks are still books to some extent. Like it's sort of less about the container in which it appears than a, about like the scope and breadth of the work. So like a book is has a specific scope and breadth, whether it appears online or it appears in print. Like it, it does the same thing. So. Mm -hmm. so it seems like tech hasn't really changed what libraries are. It just changes the way they do what they do. I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent it has changed. Like what we do is we collect and preserve cultural heritage. We teach people how to sort of conduct scholarly research. And we, you know, we provide spaces for students and faculty to like gather and we provide all different types of services to sort of help these things along. But yeah, I don't think those core things have really changed. Yeah, so there's also this misconception that everything is already digitized, you know, and, and I think that that leads to a really fundamental misunderstanding about libraries. You know, I, I say to my students, because I'm a historian, you know, so a lot of the materials that I use are not digitized, right? They're in archives. And I say to my students, like, you know, the internet is really cool. There's so many things out there that you can find. But you know what's even cooler than the internet is the library, because the library is like all the stuff that hasn't been put on the internet yet, <laughs> you know? Um, and they, like, they look at me, you know, with this sort of tolerant expression. They don't think that they were really very moved by that. But, you know, this idea that, like, why do you need a library? Everything's already online now leads to like kind of space issues too. Like if it's all online. Why do you need all this primo real estate on campus? You know, like, Ooh, this library lobby is nice. Can we put a Qdoba here? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you talk about like, why are physical library spaces still important? So one thing, one way I talk about libraries, especially with undergrads, and with grad students to some extent too, I think this is important to, to sort of take in, is that digitization costs money. So <laughs> the things that you see sort of floating around online, like talking about like digitized archival collections, for example, like someone had to write a grant usually to pay for the labor to make those things online. And if we think about how this country <laughs> funds cultural heritage organizations, we don't put a lot of money towards those sorts of things. So that's why I was like, nothing, everything will never be digitized. Like that's not going to happen. We're not going to put the resources towards that. And so we still do need to have physical libraries for physical collections. 
In terms of having an actual physical building, with not everything being digitized, like there's no way all of the books ever created will ever be digitized either. Like that's not, there's too many, it's not going to happen. So again, if our mission is to sort of preserve our cultural heritage, like we want to hold on to some of that stuff. It is the historical record, right? So we need space in which to do that. But apart from that, so when we teach classes about how to conduct library research, like we we need spaces in which to do that. Sometimes we do them in camp, that in campus classrooms, sometimes we don't. But it's funny, like mostly <laughs> what our space is used for is sort of for students and faculty to gather, to conduct research, to do work, to use the microfilm, which <laughs> there's lots of stuff that's only on microfilm, which who knew? And I think it's also sort of important to have a space that sort of belongs to everyone, even if libraries aren't always as necessarily as inclusive as we want them to be. It is nice to have a space where all students can gather, all faculty can gather. A lot of people have talked about this. There's been a, a recent speaker at a library conference sort of called it the front porch. <laughs> and having that sort of like space that crosses disciplinary boundaries that, you know, gathers materials from all different disciplines. Um, I think it's, I think it's important. Uh, well, like in our spaces outside of the pandemic are really, really heavily used. And it's sort of, it's fascinating to see what goes on in them. Um, the types of work that students are doing, you come in and all the whiteboards are covered with like chemistry diagrams or equations or concept maps. And it, it's just sort of neat. So. <laughs> There, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I do think that library spaces belong to students in a way that administrators and faculty can kind of miss. So a lot of times when I have been meeting in libraries, it's been because there's a study group or there is a class that's decided that it's got a project to do and the students organize it. And they're like, okay, well, we're gonna meet at the library. I'll reserve the room. Um, we can do it this way. There's, there's these resources available. I'm like, okay <laughs> you know like it is it is a space that belongs to students for them to collaborate so yeah i think that that is super important and something that a lot of people miss and the librarians all know and the librarians know how to facilitate it and the faculty don't even know how you know you sign a small group activity and then you just forget right. about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and we offer services in those spaces that support that sort of work so most libraries still have like a reference desk where anyone can come by and ask a question and get some help. There's also libraries that have like multimedia spaces where you can, you know, learn how to do a podcast, for example. Um, and, and there, you know, there's library staff and librarians to, to help support you in that work or, you know, make a poster or all these different sorts of things. You know, I want to get back to this point that you raised, you know, another thing that I think many people don't really understand and that I haven't understood is the cost of scholarly communications and why libraries are struggling financially. And can you explain how this works? I mean, I understand that some journals are outrageously expensive. So journal costs are terrible. <laughs> They've been going up for a while. They are subject to inflation. This past year, I know our library at least has done a lot of work on pushing back on that because we had a flat budget. So basically what happens is unless libraries get an inflationary increase in their budget every year, you will end up cutting something because a flat budget 
when some things are subject to inflation means you have less money to spend ultimately. So that's always fun <laughs> to have to cut things. How expensive are, say, medical journals compared to like humanities journals? Do you have numbers on that? So medical and science journals tend to be much more expensive than humanities and social sciences journals, although obviously some of the social sciences ones can get expensive. There are publishers that ha actually make like a 30 to 40% profit off of hosting scholarly journals. There was one journal that I heard and used as an example in other sort of talks, um, $25,000 a year for a subscription. And I should also say like, Sometimes these costs are connected with the size of the institution. So if you're a larger institution, you pay more. $25,000 for a single journal is really like for a year. That's a, that's a number that is really hard for me to understand. In a lot of cases, the folks who are, you know, writing the articles, doing the research and re reviewing the articles are faculty and so they don't get paid for that labor, right? Like that's considered part of their faculty job to do that sort of work. So what happens is universities, <laughs> it's so funny, universities um, employ faculty and scholars and they produce research and they give that research to publishing companies and then the libraries of those institutions buy it back. It's not a very good business model for universities. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> And um, there's there's been a, there's been some movement in this in this area around making it so that we don't just pay for access, we pay for making it open to everyone, mm. but we're still paying <laughs> for research that our own faculty produced. We're pressed for for funding because you need access to the journals to do the research. But then you give that work away to companies that have really sizable profit margins that then we pay to get it back. Yeah. What a racket. It's totally a racket. You know, any university library needs to have access to those journals for their faculty, right? You can't just say, oh, that costs $25,000. If it's a central journal in the field that you have faculty in, you have to have it, you know? Well, I mean, you do until you can't because you can't. there's actually no money and then <laughs> and then you end up cutting. Yeah. And I mean, I've 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 done cuts like not in my current role but in previous roles. And I mean, you sort of try to do them as you can, but like but if there's no money, there's no money. And frankly, like most of the institutions I've worked at would protect staff at the expense of collections. And I think that's absolutely the right thing to do because you will not get positions back. Right, right. So it's better to cut the journals. And I mean, there's sort of ways around that. There's like not legal internet ways, but also <laughs> um, <laughs> there's interlibrary loans. So in a lot of cases, like when we're cutting, we'll look at sort of interlibrary loan stats afterwards to see if maybe if we get the money back, maybe we need to get this journal back. But interlibrary loan costs money. Uh, yeah, interlibrary so. <laughs> loan also costs money every single time, right? So that could only work on a low-use journal, right? 
Well, and there's limits on how many articles you can access from like a specific year in a journal. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, they make it hard on us. Okay. (laughs) Well, I want to turn to another misconception and one that you write about in your own work, which is librarians' labor. And it seems like sometimes librarians' expertise and library services are pretty invisible to users. And, you know, can you explain why that is? Do you have theories? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) One is that it's gendered labor, largely. So gendered labor isn't often seen as labor, doing things like meeting with students, like interpersonal stuff. People don't see that as labor, and they also don't see it as expertise, I will say. Part of it, too, though, is we try to make things as easy as possible for library users. We want you to be able to get on our website, find a book, get the book, you know, find your article, whatever, without really you know, with sort of making the labor behind that invisible. Like that is something that we do. Like, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, I was studying up on this and this goes back a long, a long ways, right? You know, a friend of mine, Lisa Saywell, who's a librarian here at University of Wisconsin, was telling me about Reganathan's Five Laws of Library Science in the the 1950s. Save the time of the user is one of the five principles of library science that have shaped the field over the last 70 years, which is really amazing. So save the time of the user means make it so seamless that then people are like, what, you didn't help me? (laughs) Yeah. And seamlessness, and I I should also say like seamlessness, this is something I find interesting. Um, So seamlessness as a like sort of value also is connected to Silicon Valley (laughs) and like the fields of UX and usability, but they do very much connect into like Ranganathan's laws. But yeah, so we want to make it easy. We don't want to put up barriers for library users to sort of get the stuff that they need and want, but that has the effect of making it look like nothing is going on behind it. (laughs) And um, there's lots that goes on behind it. And frequently, as with like sort of most like infrastructure, like it only becomes, the labor only becomes apparent when it breaks. So um, if, you know, like a database is down, like that's very apparent and we hear all about it. And then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, obvious that someone in the library has to call the vendor and like put in a ticket with the vendor to get that fixed. But until that happens, um, you know, if you're especially too, like if you're on campus and you're like using the library website, like you're not going to hit and you're even in Google Scholar, like because you're on the campus IP range, you're not going to hit any paywalls. Whereas if you're off campus, oh, you will. Right. <laughs> and um, if you're not like going through the library or like using a VPN, it will become very apparent what the library has purchased and what the library has not purchased. Yeah. And I want to pick up on what you said about, you know, gendered labor and thinking about, you know, how reference librarians are instructed to interact with the public. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I've written about this with a couple of colleagues because our our professional organization has standards for this and guidelines and they're sort of weird and icky. But a lot of it is about making the library patron or the library user sort of feel good about themselves and feel like they've done the work themselves, (laughs) which so this also goes on in this field. Like we actually have 
we have expertise in sort of specific things like the organization of information, like how searching works, how, you know, libraries and archives and museums, like how they catalog and process and like describe their materials. Like these are things we actually do have expertise in, but we're sort of constantly in denial of our own expertise. And those reference guidelines, I think, just really reflect that and sort of reframe the work as like solely like emotional labor, (laughs) like making the patron feel good rather than helping the patron get what they need to do, the thing that they need to do and using your expertise to do that. And there is also, I would say, like expertise and sort of talking with a library patron and helping like them. And this is called a reference interview in uh, library lit um, and helping them sort of articulate like because most most folks will come in and say, I need this, and you do a little bit of digging, and it's not actually that that they need at all. They need something totally different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, expertise. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> sort of, yeah, like, sussing out what the actual need is and how and, like, which resources and which services, like, best map onto that need. So this, it's, it's sort of strange. And like, that's, that's I, intellectual, you know, that's intellectual work because that is very similar to what I do as a professor when students are like, you know, I call them shower ideas, you know, when they come in with a paper idea, you <laughs> yes. know, and they thought of it, I'm like, it's, it's a shower idea. If you can think of it in the shower, you know, you don't need to look, you don't need to look at a book, you know, you don't need to look at your computer. You would ruin your phone. If you took your phone into the shower, do you know, is like that just kind of like, I want to study, you know, tree pond. And it's like, okay, but what about it is interesting to you? Do you know, let's dig a little and develop that idea. And that's, that's like significant intellectual work that I think does take a lot of skill. And I often send students to, I'm like, talk to the librarians, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially I would say in that case, um, like, so sometimes students will have ideas and I do this too. I call it topic therapy. And I think it's a little bit different. And mine is always sort of with a big caveat of like, depending on what your professor or GSI says, <laughs> but like what we, where we can really help students with that is like, does this map onto things we have access to? Yeah. <laughs> um, especially like if they need like primary sources or something like that, but, but yeah, that, that sort of, it's, it's very much in the same vein. I agree. Well, this all makes me think about, you know, a development in libraries that I, you know, I'm sort of partial to, which is that libraries have really stepped up, especially undergraduate serving libraries, really stepped up in kind of providing care work to students. And especially during finals, there's like things that they didn't have when I was a student, like pizza parties and therapy dogs and stuff. And I love the therapy dogs, but you know, like, I'm curious about your opinion, because do you feel like this actually accentuates the gendered nature of how people see libraries and how people see librarians' expertise? I mean, I don't want to get rid of the therapy dogs, but I just want your comment on that. Well, I mean, I think in general, like, we should should really, to a much greater degree, actually, like, value care work and value reproductive labor and value the work that feminized professions do because it's hugely important as we've seen over the past year like without care work and reproductive labor like things go haywire pretty quickly 
So I think we should do both, honestly. Um, it's it's a little bit hard. And like I said, like right now I work at a very large library. We have a very large staff and we're able, I think, to sort of do all of these things. Like sometimes in smaller institutions, you have to sort of prioritize. But I think it's nice. I think it's important. Um, you know, we have the therapy dogs here too. I It's actually a different unit that does a lot of this work. And we have like midnight cookies and, you know, pizza party um the first week of classes, like things like that. And I think part of that work, what it also does is it makes the library, like b- both the spaces and sort of the staff that work in those buildings feel inclusive, feel approachable and feel like, you know, yeah, you get pizza here, but later on when you <laughs> might be crying about a research paper, you can also get help. So I, so- I sort of think those things reinforce. And like, it's tough out there. <laughs> like, we should care more for each other. It's it, 100%. It's <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, this has been so helpful and illuminating. Thank you for teaching me so much about libraries. And I really appreciate your work and your time. Thanks for visiting College Land, Maura. Thanks. It was fun. Wow, Nan. (laughs) One of the main themes that I emphasize in my own research and teaching is the social importance and economic value of women's emotional labor and care work in jobs like housekeeping and childcare. I'm really embarrassed to say that I had never thought about how this takes place kind of like in my own backyard, right? How librarians perform a form of care work in their interactions with students and with faculty on campuses. Yeah, so much of what happens in the classroom and in our research depends on the library, but we don't always publicly recognize the work or make it visible. And I was really struck by Maura talking about the library is an infrastructure of information services that functions across all of these different fields. And we all access the library differently. You know, I think I didn't understand the libraries entirely, partly because I've gone to them for so long and I have such an emotional connection to libraries. You know, I started going to libraries when I was three years old. (laughs) My mom would take us, she'd haul us over to the public library. It was my favorite place to go. I still remember the distinctive way that library smelled and we could check out books every week. And it was just a place of, of magic. And I, you know, I just loved books as a little kid. And, you know, so I kind of feel like, you know, I heart libraries, like I know libraries, how could I not know libraries? But of course, like a university library is this huge organism. It's like this massive institution. Yeah. I mean, I, feel the same way about libraries. I have a really emotional connection to them. I don't know if you did the summer reading club when you were a kid, you know, and you'd go in every week and like report on books to the librarian and get little prizes. But that was one of the highlights of my summers when I was a kid. And then when I was in graduate school, when it came time to study for my comprehensive exams, I actually left Madison where I was, you know, going to school for a few months and moved to Toronto away from all my friends and distractions. The idea was I was just going to kind of hole up in a city that I loved, but just away from everyone just to study. 
And so studying for comps in history is basically just reading hundreds, literally hundreds of books. And so I was constantly in the big research library at the university. And I was living all alone in a huge city. I really didn't know many people there at all. But somehow like going through those stacks every day made me feel like connected to people and at home. My favorite place, this is like super nerdy, was, but shout out for anyone who, you know, knows the HQ 1400s, those books, because they were the books that I had been discussing in seminars with my friends. They were written by professors I had studied with and been mentored by. And I don't know, somehow just being surrounded by all those books that I loved and that I kind of had a personal connection to really reminded me that I was becoming part of a scholarly community and really made me feel less alone. That's such a great example, Lisa, of what Maura was talking about with the library as sort of a front porch of the university. Like you weren't even a student at the University of Toronto, yeah. you know, but you could go and be there. Like the library is welcoming to everyone. Like anyone can go to the library, which is not really true of other places on campus, right? Like, I just love that sense of like a welcoming presence, open to everyone. Libraries are a true public space in that way. And now listeners, since this is the last episode of our first season, we'd like to reflect a bit. Yeah, we're going to be continuing in the summer, but on a reduced release schedule. So this is a natural time to take stock. Lisa, I feel like I've learned so much over the past five months about making a podcast for sure. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> sometimes we learn that the hard way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but also about higher education. You know, we started this podcast because we felt that there are so many untold stories of people who work in higher education and that we would have a better handle on the vexing issues in higher ed if we understood what's really going on in college land. And there have been many moments for me when like we kind of exceeded my expectations because my own view of college has actually really shifted. One of the themes that has really stood out to me is the complete fallacy of the idea that higher education is something done by and for the elite, right? That just, you listen to our episodes, you just see how that's simply not true. We started the season with Dia Abdo talking about how colleges were housing refugees, Tracy Harder, the housekeeper at UNC Chapel Hill, talked about how many students on campus have to hold jobs to pay their bills. And then, of course, the episode on food insecurity really just underscored how many students, faculty, and staff are unable to meet their basic needs. Yeah, one thing I didn't expect is that several interviews have really expanded my imagination about what a university or college can be. You know, every campus a refuge made me think in new ways about the potential of campuses as communities that can serve, you know, refugees and immigrants that are coming to our country and need support. Beyond the land grab university, Mike Dockery painted a vision for me of a university that not only truly served Native students, but was also a center of Native thought and ingenuity. Inside a vaccine lab made me think about what the world would be like if we shared scientific data as a rule, not just during a pandemic emergency. You know, and we are we are well aware and are going to continue to explore the ways that the university is so far from ideal right now. There's too much inequality at, at its foundation and there are a lot of problems. 
but there are people building new little worlds right now on campus. And that's really inspiring. Speaking of inspiring listeners, we have a Rick Hart update for you. We featured him in our episode on student voting in Georgia. And Rick has been elected the president of Young Democrats of Georgia, a real testament to his incredible talents and dedication, but also to how universities can serve as launching pads for people to enter careers in public service. It's so cool to to keep track of the people that we've interviewed on College Land. And it's also cool when we see the podcast having some real world impact. So we wanted to share with you that clips from the Food and Security on Campus episode are going to be featured in an app-based tour through Southern Wisconsin that's called Routes and Roots. And this is a fundraiser to make community-supported agriculture subscriptions available to low-income residents. So we just love that that episode is going to become part of an action that's designed to really address food insecurity. And one of our listeners, Dan, contacted the University of Toronto after hearing our episode and is challenging their practice of leaving food banks up to the student union there. On a super personal level, still with that same food insecurity on campus episode, I assigned it in my class, and just last week, a student forwarded to me an email that informed her that her housing subsidy had been approved. I hadn't known that she was housing insecure, and I feel just very sure that she told me because of that podcast episode. You know, podcasting is really one big conversation, and we're excited to see the conversations and connections continue. Speaking of conversations, listeners, thank you for sharing your ideas about future podcast episodes. Megan wants us to talk about grad student labor unions. Tracy suggests an episode on campus policing. Eileen wants to hear our take on so-called cancel culture and right-wing attacks on campuses in general. And Ray wants us to talk about first-generation students and also university extension activities. And let's not forget Pete's suggestion from our launch to interview a person who dresses up as a university mascot. We're definitely going to be following (laughs) up on this idea. So if there are any listeners out there who work as a university mascot, please contact us. Contact us immediately. (laughs) So (laughs) listeners, what did you think about the first season of College Land? What are the themes that stand out to you? Contact us on Facebook or Twitter at College Land Pod or by email, collegelandpod at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, we hope you'll subscribe to College Land on your favorite podcast app. Give us some stars. Leave us a review. That's it for today on College Land. Thanks to our wonderful producer, Rochelle Wilson, and to Wisconsin Humanities for their support. See you in the summer on College Land. College Land.